You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome to Episode 2 in Season 2 of Neighbors and Nations, and today's special guest is Vance Pittman. I first heard Vance several years ago at a SEND conference, and I think you'll thoroughly enjoy our conversation and his insight not only into his work here uh, within the States, uh, he is Senior Pastor of Hope Church in Las Vegas, but his insight into how the world is flattening, becoming smaller, and the amount of opportunity we have even uh, domestically to really minister and serve uh, globally. So let's jump right into my conversation with Vance Pittman on Episode 2 of Neighbors and Nations. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast today. Really glad you've joined us for another edition of Neighbors and Nations, and I'm really privileged to have with our, as our guest today, Vance Pittman. Vance, welcome to Neighbors and Nations. Todd, really honored to be with you today. Uh, love the opportunity to get connect, especially with our shared stories of church planting. It's great to get to connect with you here today. Well, give us a brief, uh, like a rundown of who's Vance Pittman. <laughs> That's a great question. Vance Pittman, born and raised in Alabama, a long way from where I live now in Las Vegas, Nevada. Came to know Christ uh, as a freshman in college. I was in a family that was Christian, but my parents were first generation Christians. So I didn't grow up in a heritage of the faith. Uh, but my mom and dad were solid believers. My dad was a pastor. Came to know Christ in, in college. Then shortly after that, surrendered to ministry. Uh, served 10 years in ministry uh, on the East Coast in churches, primarily in the Bible Belt. And now for the last 20 years, have been a church planter in Las Vegas, Nevada. Moved here in December of 2000 and began the work of planting Hope Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I've been out here for 20 years, been married to my beautiful wife, Christy, 28 years. We have four children and now two grandchildren. So oh, that's great. Uh, life is sweet, man. So that's a little bit about my story. I first heard you at a SEND gathering. I'm not sure if it was called that then, but uh, several years ago. Um, and I also, in some of our assessments that I was part of, they show a video clip of you talking yeah. to planters. I think you know what I'm talking about there. I do. Yeah. So I feel I like can I've heard always, your story. Yeah. I can always tell when there's an assessment going on somewhere in America because somebody will tag me on Twitter out of that video. That There's a quote <laughs> out of that video that always gets tagged. So I'm like, yep, there's an assessment going on somewhere. So now it's a privilege to be partnered with the North American Mission Board and the Send Network and, and, and planting churches. And they've been a huge partner for us. And to be able to reciprocate that by, you know, being a part of assessments and training and conferences is a huge, huge blessing and, and opportunity for us here at Hope. Now, before we jump into our next question, I'll maybe share just a brief word. Johnny Hunt kind of tells the story as if he just got a sense that you should be the planter in Las Vegas and called you and said, Vance, you need to go. Is that is that some preaching imagination or is that actually true or walk us through That's that? actually a hundred percent true. Uh, to kind of give you the, the, the story I, I had, had, had gone through some stuff in my own life in ministry after 10 years in the Bible belt and had gotten to a place where we really, my wife and I had, had come to a place of brokenness. Um, and through a verse of scripture out of Luke four, God had really stirred our hearts about serving somewhere outside the Bible belt in another culture, another, another even country we were open to. Uh, and we said, 
we actually in a quiet time one morning, my wife and I knelt down and just said, Lord, yes, we don't know when we don't know where the answer is. Yes. And Johnny had been a mentor at a distance in my life for uh, probably about eight or nine years, had a great relationship with Pastor Johnny. And he, you know, such a generous guy. He actually was speaking for me at an event in Memphis, Tennessee. And on our way out the door after the event, Johnny stopped me in the hallway and said, Vance, uh, God's put it on our hearts to plant a church in the fastest growing city in North America, Las Vegas, Nevada. And God's put it on my heart that you're to be the pastor of that church. So two weeks earlier, we said yes. And two weeks later, God had the audacity to fill in the blank with Las Vegas. Uh, so here we are 20 years later. Man, well, Las Vegas is a long way from Alabama, as you said. So I suspect you've probably seen more nations in Las Vegas than you or I could ever really travel to. And this podcast is about neighbors and nations and developing a, a heart for both in our listeners. So uh, what was that adjustment like for a guy from Alabama to suddenly be in Las Vegas when there's probably some real differences uh, in ethnicities in both those places. That may be the greatest understatement you've ever made on this podcast <laughs> to say there's some real difference between Alabama and Las Vegas. That is remarkably true. I'm just kind of giving you a real uh, soft pitch here. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, I grew up in Alabama. And when I said I was moving to Las Vegas, like people looked at me like I said I was moving to the moon because where I grew up, you didn't go to Las Vegas. And if you did, you didn't tell anybody. Like um, where I'm from, people don't think Las Vegas is hell, but they think you can smell it from here. Like we're real close. Uh, but when we got here, we knew immediately that God had called us to you know, an unbelievable place that really felt like being more of an overseas missionary than it did being a pastor of a church. Because mm. I moved to a city when I moved here in 2000, it was 95 percent non-Christian. So when I moved here, there was 1.3 million people, 95% non-Christian, non-church attending people, non-religious people, 60% non-religious, didn't practice anything. Uh, and yet at the same time, the nations were here. Now, since I moved here, over a million people have moved to Las Vegas. We now have 2.3 million people who live here. Um, the Clark County School District, which is the Las Vegas Valley, has 154 different languages spoken in the Clark County School District. 154 languages in our school district. UNLV was recognized by U.S. News and World Reports as the second most diverse university campus in America. U.S. News and World Reports did an article on Las Vegas, and they said that Las Vegas is the America of the future because Las Vegas is a city of 2.3 million people, but we have no majority. The white population in Las Vegas is less than 50% of the makeup of our city. So an incredibly diverse city. Demographers say by 2043, there'll be no majority population in America. Well, we're already mm -hmm. there in the city of Las Vegas. Our okay. church, as a reflection of that, our church alone has 54 languages represented in our church. Wow. So it's, it looks like what the kingdom of God looks like. It's every tribe, tongue, people, nation, multiple cultures Amen. and colors in one place uh, it, it's an exciting place to be involved in ministry for sure. So what were those adjustments like when you first got there? Because obviously now you're speaking and you know the demographics. I can tell you, you love it. You're at home. But that had to be initially like, whoa. It was, I had to the, the biggest adjustment was I had to stop thinking like a pastor and start thinking like a missionary. And here's okay. what I mean by that. Pastors think church first. Missionaries think city first. And I had to begin to think like a missionary. I had been called here not to pastor a church. I'd been called here to engage a city through domains of society with the gospel and make disciples. And out of that, let churches be born. 
And that was a big shift for me. And it was a shift for the people that came with me to plant because a lot of them came. And the first thing they wanted to do, because they'd come from places like First Baptist Woodstock with Johnny Hunt or my dad's church in Memphis that were large churches that had ministries galore. They wanted to start ministries. Well, we didn't even have a church. How can we start children's choir or Bible schools when we don't even have a church yet? So I had to teach them to begin to think like missionaries engaging a city. When we send a missionary overseas, a missionary doesn't look for a storefront, buy a pulpit, send out a mailer and start preaching services. A missionary uses a platform, business, education, sports, medicine, and uses that platform to engage society through those relationships, have gospel conversations, make disciples, and then churches are born as a byproduct. And much of the church planting in North America, we're really not starting churches. We're starting church services and then trying to build ministries out of church services. When you plant a church, you don't start with a church. You start with a city and you engage that city with the gospel. That's why Jesus never said, go plant churches. He said, go into all the nations, all the cities, all the ethnos, the peoples, make disciples. Churches will be born as a byproduct. So that had to I had to shift my thinking from thinking church first to city first. And that even changes me as a preacher because now I'm preaching to people who have no context for the Bible. So I can't talk about the story of Noah without telling the story of Noah. I can't talk about the story of Lot or Abraham without telling that story because our people have never heard those stories before. Wow, that's really good. There's some, some deep nuggets in there for guys and girls listening. That's great. So take a moment and talk about how God prepared you for that. And I don't mean just in those initial years, but back us up to the Vance Pittman story and who was instrumental in your life. Where did God birth in you a, a heart for maybe moving there or the nations? Can I walk us through some key moments and people? Yeah, man, for me, the heart for the nation started in my home church that I'd grown up in. After my dad left that church, uh, he'd been pastor of, Another pastor came and I went on staff in that church and our church got exposed to a ministry called World Thrust. It actually birthed a new ministry called Global Focus. It was led by a man named Larry Reeser. The original leader of World Thrust was a guy named Bill Borup. And they taught this principle called the Faith Promise Offering for Missions out of a church in Canada, Paul Smith. Um, and uh, we started having this conference every year to take up an offering above and beyond our regular giving for mission. And in doing that, they started bringing in all these missionary partners. And for the first time in my life, I started getting exposed to people from other parts of the world that believed in the same God, the same Jesus, the same Bible, but they spoke different languages, had different cultures, different contextualized approaches to ministry. And it just blew my mind as I began to realize that the kingdom of God was so much bigger than mm. the church that I had been a part of. I realized that the end goal wasn't the church. It was the kingdom. The church was a tool that was planted by Jesus for the expansion of the kingdom, that the kingdom's the real goal. So all that began to be stirred in my heart. And that's kind of how I began pastoral ministry. Then in the Bible Belt, I pastored my first church and really led them to engage in the nation's. Um, oh, and ironically enough, that's what ultimately got me run off from the church. Really? I, uh, we start, we started leading our church. Well, first of all, it was a church in a very small town in Tennessee. And in three years, we saw over 300 people baptized into our church and literally had almost a fourth of the town coming to our church. 
we started taking up money. I started taking people to Africa and working overseas. And we started reaching some black children in our city. And our church was a church that had a heritage that I didn't know this, but the previous pastors had taught the old curse of ham theology and the uh, blacks and whites intermarriage dating and all that was sinful. And so, man, I stepped into a landmine that ultimately they asked me and our entire staff team to leave. It was a power struggle. It was ugly. Now, I say that to say up until that moment, if you'd asked me what the primary call of my life was, I would have said the primary call was ministry. It was when God used that to strip away the ministry that he taught me that the primary call was not ministry. It was intimacy. Ministry is what he does out of the overflow of intimacy. And God brought a guy into my life named Clyde Cranford who began to disciple me in what it looked like just to allow Christ to live his life in and through you. Not you living for Jesus, but Jesus living in and through you. And it was like I got saved all over again. I found this newfound freedom wow. in Christ. And it was that journey of growing in Christ's likeness that I told you a minute ago about the morning. My wife and I were in this God time. And I read this verse of scripture where Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Well, when I read that, what I saw was something in Jesus that wasn't in me, a passion for other cities, a passion for the kingdom to be expanded where it had never been before. And so my surrender was not to church planting. My surrender was to an area of Christ likeness that ultimately God used to relocate my family to Las Vegas. So it was that preparation and that stripping. Now, I would have never moved to Las Vegas to start a church because I was going to a bigger church and a bigger church and a bigger church. Mm. But God stripped me, began to produce this Christ likeness in me that led me to Vegas. And the other thing that really shaped us when we got here, the very first week on the field, I got a telephone call from a lady uh, named Letty Peralta, who was a Filipino lady. And she said, uh, Pastor, uh, can I tell you a story? I said, well, Letty, I don't know anybody in Las Vegas. You can tell me any story you want to tell me. <laughs> she said, well, Pastor, I'm from the Philippines. I moved to Hong Kong to make money for my family that was very poor. While living in Hong Kong, I met an American family, moved in with them, became the caretaker of their home. She said that American family relocated back to America. They got all the paperwork. I moved with them as a part of their family back to America. We settled north of Atlanta, Georgia, in a suburb called Woodstock, Georgia. She said, I visited a church called the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, and heard a preacher named Johnny Hunt preach the gospel and the mission like I'd never heard it before. But she said, then my family got relocated to Las Vegas, Nevada. She said, I've been in Las Vegas for a year and a half, and I've prayed every day that the First Baptist Church of, of, of Woodstock, Georgia would start a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Would you please tell me who sent you here? Now, I've been in Las Vegas for a week. a week. None of us knew Letty Peralta even existed. And yet, two weeks earlier, I'd loaded everything I owned in the parking lot of the First Baptist Church of Woodstock, Georgia, into a green Dodge minivan, drove all the way across the country to be involved in planting a church, being sent from that church. And it, 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 it really resonated with me because here's what I learned from her phone call. I didn't come to Las Vegas to start anything. I was simply getting in on something that God was doing long before I got here. Amen. was going to continue to be about long after I'm off the scene. I'd just been called to be a steward of the story for a season. And I thought back to that moment I had with the Lord in my God time. And I thought, man, what would I have missed out on if I'd not been with him that morning? You know, he didn't need me to do this. He was doing this in Las Vegas with or without Vance Pittman. But that, that phone call with Letty Peralta really rocked us. 
And it birthed in us a rally cry that said, we don't pray before we work. Prayer is the work mm. and then God works. And we've just been a fellowship really birthed in prayer and engaging a city with the gospel. I can't imagine how affirming that story must have been. I bet you didn't need any other confirmations, did you? About seven years ago, Letty got married and moved to Florida. And when Letty moved, I almost moved with her because I felt like the glory of God had departed when she moved. (laughs) I flew down, my wife and I, we did the wedding there in Florida, but beautiful, beautiful family. And just that, yes, she's a real treasured part of our history here at Hope Church. With that kind of background, like the conferences and your dad being a pastor and your eyes being just kind of opened early to the fields, did you ever sense a missionary calling may actually be in your future? Absolutely. When we, um, and what's funny is I think yes and yes. And here's what I mean by that. When we first surrendered that morning in my living room, my wife and I, we thought we were going to another country. As a matter of fact, I was a good Southern Baptist boy. I did the only thing I knew to do. After I said yes to the Lord, I picked up the telephone and called the International Mission Board and said, (laughs) my wife and I would like to apply. Now, back then, uh, the application process was different. My wife did not yet have 60 hours of college credit. So they turned us down on the phone. Like we didn't get past a phone call. They just said, you're not qualified. And so here I was, thought we were supposed to go to the nations. I was a Southern Baptist. The only way I knew to get there was the IMB. So I didn't know what to do. And we just sat and prayed on that for two weeks. And two weeks later is when God brought Johnny with the Las Vegas invitation. And what I now know is God put me here as a missionary to the mm-hmm. nations. That's um, true. Las Vegas, uh, you, you heard me describe the city earlier and the multicultural nature of the city, but not only that, America is the fourth largest lost nation on planet Earth. 40% of the lost population of America lives in the Western United States. In every major city in the Western United States, there's between 92 and 95% lostness. So what God did is he strategically allowed us to be planted in the center of the fourth largest numerical mission field on planet earth that's reaching the nations. We now have a reach that goes all around the world from this place in Las Vegas. And it's just like God to take the most unlikely city in the world, sin city and use that city for the expansion of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So man, we really thought we were going to the field. I've tried to go to the field multiple times. God's closed the door uh, I've now been in 50 countries. Uh, we take we take between 20 and 40 teams a year overseas around the world out of our church, and we mobilize a lot of people. But but yeah, it's definitely. I think any pastor who's really walking with Jesus and in the Word and has a heart for the kingdom is always going to wrestle with the call to the field. Amen. It just, it's just it's just going to be there. Say that. Amen. That's repeat that. That's awesome. You think that uh. Yeah, take a minute and kind of walk us through some of the things that Hope Church does or has done in regards to neighbors and nations. I know you've got some domestic plants. I assume you've got some international plants, too, or or movements. Talk about those for a bit. Yeah. Um, well, I, a couple of things about, uh, you know, what it looks like when you think neighbors and nations. I think for us, the two things I would say. Number one, there's been an intentionality about being the missionary in your city. I think that's the thing a lot of churches in North America miss is, is, and I think it was Bob Roberts who first posed this question to me this way, but he said, Vance, what if you think about the church being the missionary? What if the church is the missionary in the city? Unfortunately, a lot of churches in America have become islands unto themselves rather than being 
uh, building bridges into the communities where they can be missionaries. Um, and, and rather than being partners in the city, a lot of churches are more like parasites on the back of the city. They want free everything. They want discounts. They don't want to pay taxes. Rather than being a vital part of the city, an integral part of the fabric of the city and serving as a missionary in the city. Um, and so I think that's important. And for churches, you know, that are maybe somebody listening to this who goes, man, you got 54 languages. I don't have 54 languages in my city. Well, mm-hmm. not every church is going to be that multicultural. But here's what every church should be. Every church should be a reflection of its community. Your church should be as diverse as the community you're in. If your community is not that diverse, then your church is not going to be that diverse. But here's why I say that. The gospel is no respecter of persons. If we engage a community with the gospel, the community will be one to Christ, which means whatever the community looks like, is what our church is going to look like. Now, when we start with a church, with a style, with a structure, with an organization, we attract a certain kind of people. But when you start with a city, the gospel's no respecter of persons. So the church becomes a reflection of the community in the city where that church is born. So I would say to anybody listening, an intentionality to be a missionary in your city, to think about what does it look like for our church to engage? And one of the ways we do that at Hope is we do an annual survey in our church to understand who we are. We call it a domain survey. And so I can tell you today, the two largest domains in our church right now this year are education and uh, business. Those are the two largest domains that we have. Third would be medical. So education, business, and medical. So what we do is we look for ways in our city to serve as a church, mobilizing through those domains of education, business and medicine, because that's who we are. Just like if you were a doctor and you were going to China to serve as a missionary, you'd use your platform as a doctor. Well, as the church, we understand how God has shaped us. And we utilize that in mobilizing our church to serve and engage in the city and build relationships and become an integral part of the community where we serve. So there has to be an intentionality to to be a missionary in your city. And then when you think about the nations, there has to be an intentionality to send missionaries to the world. And that sending can be one of two ways. It can be direct. We do some of that. We have people out of our fellowship that we've raised up, led to Christ, discipled, and now we've sent them out to the nations. But it can also be done cooperatively. One of the beautiful things about our tribe as the SBC is that we get the privilege of cooperatively pooling money and sharing in the sending of missionaries all over the world. So those are a couple of things that I would say about um you know, how, how you can flesh that out no matter where you are, no matter what the culture of the community where you are. Yeah. And you're right. Cause a lot of guys listening probably are a little more homogenous and you're sure. saying, Hey, I love your idea about the community and reflecting that. And that's a very freeing comment you gave us because there is a, um, I think we're free to say this. There's, there's a sense of guilt at times that we're not diverse enough. Yeah. There's for a some pressure guys in right some now. areas. Yeah. Pressure. But they're thinking, how do I make that happen? And you're saying, just be your community. That's your very community. free. And here's the way you know. Go to your local school. If your church doesn't look like your local school, something's wrong in your missiological approach with the gospel to the community. Because there, there's a, actually Derwin Gray wrote a book called The HD Leader. In that book, he makes this statement. The average local school in America is 20 times more integrated than the average local church in the same community. Something's wrong when legislation has done more to integrate society than transformation through the power of the gospel. 
And so if my church doesn't look like my community, then there's a missiological problem in how I'm exposing my community to the gospel. And I need to address that. I can't go beyond the diversity in my city, but I can at least be as diverse as the community Mm -hmm. that I'm in. That's a good way to put that. So you said hope has sent some people. I guess you guys have got just some folks in different places around the globe. You've got some local churches you've planted as well. Yeah, we do. We have 68 churches that we've planted in the Western United States out of our church. And so let me let me qualify that, too, because that's a, a term. Everybody said we planted a church. What does that mean? So at Hope, when we say we've planted a church, it means five things. It means we were involved in the assessing of the planting team. We were involved in the training of that team. It means the primary planter spent a year with us, either in residence or at a distance cohort level that we have. It means that we've put money into that plant, and it means that we've mobilized people out of our fellowship uh, with the opportunity to engage in that plant, either short-term or long-term. So when all five of those things are there, we say, hey, we've planted this church. So 68 times now in the Western United States, we've done that about, I think about 20 of those in Las Vegas, Uh, the other 48 of those up and down the West Coast from up to Portland, Oregon, down to San Diego, California, Denver, Colorado, Tucson, Phoenix, uh, Salt Lake City, all up and down the West Coast, uh, all the way to, to Hilo, Hawaii. Had a guy that came to Christ in our church. We discipled him, sent him to plant in Hilo, Hawaii, which was his hometown. He went back there to plant because a lot of Polynesians in Las Vegas. Vegas is called the Ninth Island for a lot of people that don't know that. So a lot of Polynesians. So 68 plants in the Western United States, uh, which is kind of our uh, Judea Samaria. But then also we, part, we plant churches globally, internationally. Uh, our plants in uh, the Western United States would be more direct, where we have had all that involvement. Our plants globally would be done through partnerships, through field partnerships with international partners. Sometimes that's nationals. We have a national that we work with in Southeast Asia uh, who works in some closed countries. And through our relationship with him over the last 15 years, we've seen well over a thousand house churches uh, planted in a couple of countries there in Southeast Asia. We are part of an annual conference where we take a team over and and serve alongside him there. We also do this with IMB personnel in in South Asia. Uh, We have a a partnership that's new over the last three to four years in South Asia, where we've seen a couple of hundred churches that have been planted there uh, among some uh, people, unreached people groups there. Um, And then we've adopted an unreached, unengaged unreached people group in the Arabian Peninsula through the International Mission Board. And we're doing that and what we call a 50-year strategy. We, we know that it may be the next generation that sees the first church. We actually just had our first believers come to Christ uh, among this people group. It happened in a um, uh, refugee camp in a, in a different nation uh, that, that adjoins the nation that we're targeting. Uh, but but so yeah we we're we're involved in planting both locally, uh, then in our Judea Samaria and then globally as well. Man, I praise God for your ministry and just what God's done through you and through those people. There. That's uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. Like that, that thrills my heart, Vance, to hear all well, that. For, listen, God's been man. so good because I mean we came here. You know I'm a guy from Alabama. I really I didn't even know if, when I got here if this would even work. Like. Um, it was amazing when I first got here, even my accent, like people would come hear me just because they would bring a friend. So you got to hear him talk. Like I would <laughs> use colloquialisms and expressions. It was, I was like a novel novelty item for them. Um, but to see by God's grace, what he's done 
And what he's allowed us to be involved in has been beyond overwhelming. And uh, we're very, it's really true that he will do exceeding abundantly above and beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. Mm -hmm. Let me get to some brass tacks for a few moments if I could. And you can refuse to answer these if you'd like. I don't want to get too (laughs) nosy. But um, let's talk about finances for a bit in regards to neighbors and nations. Uh, How does Hope Church, or how do you personally know like percentages, where to invest more or less money, uh, like locally versus globally? Are there some fences that you use or your board uses to put up that might help ensure that both stay in Hope's view? Yeah. So for us, the way we do that, and I don't, I mean, we probably wouldn't use, I don't know that we would say it's a fence, but the way we do it is every year we do a zero based budgeting process. And we have about a four-month strategic planning process. It usually, this year, obviously, 2020 is unlike any other year we've ever had. But normally, around June, uh, our uh, myself and our executive pastor will lead our staff team to begin about a four- to five-week prayer process where our teams are for four to five weeks praying through God's vision, strategy, mission for the upcoming year. So they'll take four to five weeks and just spend that in prayer. We give them some parameters um, as they pray through that. We give them kind of a fourfold filter of um, that, that they use to pray through that. Um, if anybody's interested in that, I don't know. Yeah, I actually have a, a, a podcast that I do. We actually walk through that fourfold filter on one of my podcasts. If anybody wants to go to check that out. Um, but uh, we, we have them walk through a four to five week prayer process. Then they walk through about a three to four week planning process. After having heard from God, they begin to put that plan together. Then they come to our executive team and they present the plan for engaging locally and globally at every level. Then on the backside of that, we put dollars. We believe dollars follow vision and strategies. So we start with hearing from God. We start with establishing the vision for engaging locally and globally. And then we let the budget be driven by what we believe we've heard from God. And that zeroes out every year. So it's not like because last year something got X percentage of the budget, it's going to get X percentage next year. It may drastically change year to year based on what we hear from the Lord and how he directs us. So when we finish that process, our budget is broken down into five categories, personnel, operations, debt services, reserves, and then a category we call ministry and mobilization. Ministry and mobilization would be everything locally and globally that's that's used to engage. So that this year is 21% of our budget is ministry and mobilization. 55% of that is designated outside of our local community. So of our ministry and mobilization budget, more than 50% of that is outside of our immediate church context. Um, And that's where it landed this year. Now, that figure goes up and down year to year, but it's based on that process that we use to get us there. And that process always starts with the heart of the Father. And here's what I believe. If we get on our heart what's on His heart, the nations will always be reflected in the way that we spend our resources. Yeah, that's that's very helpful and very concrete. I think that will be a, a good nugget for a lot of guys listening. And the reason I ask about money is because I think sometimes we're slow to invest in either, uh, whether it's neighbors or nations, but we are very quick to invest in ourselves. And 
I think, um, and just maybe comment on this, I think often our heart, believe it or not, follows our money. And I think you're right. Dollars should follow vision. But if yep. sometimes if there's not a heart for something, like you said, the father's heart, uh, we seem slow to really opt to, to get behind it. Maybe if we would just trust that God's pattern and formula is true, that we should just give to the nations, we'd find our heart moving there sometimes. So a million percent. talk about that for a bit. No, I totally agree. And I believe, I believe convictionally that the greatest enemy to the advance of the kingdom in the world today is not persecution. It's not false doctrine. The greatest enemy to the advance of the kingdom is the self-centeredness of the people of God. Uh, you see it reflected in the New Testament. In that, that passage I quoted earlier out of Luke 4, when Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom to the other cities. He said that in response to the crowds coming to him. And the Bible says they tried to keep him from going away from them. They'd experienced Jesus and they said, let's just keep it all right here. So from the New Testament to today, the natural tendency of our flesh is to gravitate towards our own care, our own feeding, our own growth, our own development. But the missional heart of the God we serve is always to look outwardly and to think about the nations. And, and here's what we've learned. As we live this out, both in mission, vision, and with finances, we've learned two lessons. Number one, living generously as a fellowship inspires our people to join mm. in God's activity. Our people have realized that giving to my church is not giving to an organization. Giving to my church is investing in the kingdom being expanded. I say this almost every weekend when we take an offering. I say today, we're not giving to a church. We're giving through a church as Amen. an investment in the kingdom being expanded. Now, if your ministry philosophy doesn't back that up, they'll call you on it. But if your ministry philosophy backs you up, then they will invest. People get inspired. They want to give. They want to make a difference. They want to live generously, but they're not going to give to build your empire, but they will give to expand the kingdom of God. And when you show them a church that is a funnel for that, it inspires people. Here's the second thing we've learned. Living generously as a church invites the favor of God on our fellowship. I wish I had time on this podcast to tell you all the stories of how God has supernaturally provided for this ministry beyond anything we could. Have. I mean, we're living in one moment right now. This is the COVID year. This is COVID-19. The week before COVID-19 hit, the week before, we closed our church on a Friday to go online. The Sunday before, a family that had only been coming to our church for about six weeks put in the offering basket a handwritten $750,000 check the week before COVID. Now, since COVID, not counting that, we've seen giving that has met our regular budget. God has just supernatural. We're having in the midst of COVID, the greatest financial year in the 20-year history of our church is happening this year. There's only one explanation for that. When you live generously as a fellowship, when we when we adjusted things with COVID, we treated our mission investment like it was personnel. We didn't touch it. Mm, we continued to sacrifice and give. Doing that, you invite the favor of God. I'm not saying it's a give to get mentality, but here's what I'm saying. When you live this way, you cannot outgive God. He will mm. do what he said he would do and open the windows of heaven. We saw it all the way back to the very first. When our first church first began, we were one year old. I had a missionary from South Africa speak in our church. He's not actually, he was a national from South Africa. 
And I felt led of the Lord that morning to give our offering to him. Now, when you're a year old church plant, you're living off what's coming in that week. But I felt led to give it to him. So I stood up in front of our church. I said, listen, this is not normal. We normally have a process, but I feel led to give everything that comes in today to him. Well, guess what? That day was the largest offering we've had in our one year history of our church. We gave him the whole thing. I took him to lunch. At lunch, a couple walks over to my table and says, Pastor, we're so embarrassed. We visited your church this morning. Uh, We're from another church back east, and our church back east wanted to make an investment in your church. We were so excited with what your church did that we totally forgot to talk to you after the service. I'm thankful they went to this restaurant. They hand me an envelope. In the envelope was a check for $100 more than what we'd given away that morning in our offering. Like we gave it away and an hour later, God gave it back plus Mm. some more. And since then, our church has just learned you cannot outgive God. And I just think those are things that a lot of the church in America is missing out on. I hope pastors who are listening or just even members or those who serve in their churches hear that and just recommit to financial generosity for the sake of the neighbors and nations. Hey, I, I, that's a great story. Uh, hey, before we finish up, I know you mentioned some concepts earlier that I think came out of your book, but yeah, take some time and do two things. Tell us about your book, maybe what's behind the writing of it, but also you mentioned your podcast. Tell our listeners about that because I'd love to promote that and get them listening to you as well on there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the book's kind of a long journey. You know, uh, I, I've, I've had people asking me to write for a long time, but I, I don't know. I just had a conviction that too many guys in my generation are writing too early. And I wanted to be sure that, you know, we really had tapped into some content that had been proven. It wasn't theory. So for 20 years and really 30 years of my life as a Christian, the truths of this book have been fleshed out. And it really came out of my own personal journey, the crisis of faith that I had of coming to Christ in a, in a, in a, in a structure that was, uh, you knew you were saved by grace, but once you got saved, it was up to you to now commit to live the Christian life. Um, it's the operative word in kind of the discipleship culture that I come from is the word commitment, which implies you have something to bring to the table to commit to do. And so for the first decade of my Christian journey, I lived frustrated trying hard to be a good Christian, but never measuring up. And it wasn't until about 10 years into my journey that I discovered that Jesus never called me to live the Christian life. Jesus called me to die so that he could live his life through me. And there's great freedom in understanding the Christian life is not me living for Jesus, it's Jesus living in and through me. There's power in the resurrected Christ in and through us. And so the book is my journey of coming to the freedom of Christ in me, living through me, and now 20 years of discipling people in Las Vegas, the only gospel they know is Christ died for our sins, but he also rose again to live his life through us. And so we've seen them begin to live out this freedom of Christ in them. And that's really the message of the book. It's, it's titled Unburdened, Stop Living for Jesus So Jesus Can Live His Life Through You. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, a, I believe, a real freeing message uh, for, for believers and then for non-believers to be exposed to the gospel. I think it gives them the totality of the gospel. So the would you say the book's pretty, uh, was the book pretty testimonial? Uh, it is testimonial. It, it's my own personal journey. Uh, and good. then it tells some of the stories of some of the people here in our fellowship. But um, yeah, it's really born out of my own personal journey and what That's God great. did in my life, you know, over, over these decades. And then now watching that bring freedom in Christ 
to people in a city that, you know, a lot of people would have said there's no hope for. I've watched, you know, prostitutes and drug dealers and drug addicts and prisoners, you know, these people come to Christ and see their lives radically changed by the power of the gospel and Christ begin to live through them and the freedom that that brings. That's good. Your podcast now? Yeah, the podcast is just called the Vance Pittman Leadership Podcast. Uh, It's primarily targeted towards leaders, but not just church leaders. We do it in such a way that it's open to anybody, whether it's business, education, medicine. Obviously, some of the content leans specifically to those involved in spiritual leadership, but we try to do it in such a way that it really addresses leadership. For example, the podcast that just released, we release one a month. Uh, It's the first Monday of the month. The one that just released uh, this month in August was about the leader and social media just giving some practical wisdom about how as leaders to utilize the tool of social media. Social media can be a powerful tool, but it can also be a dangerous weapon in the wrong hands. And as leaders, we need to be wise how we engage and use social media. So that was the one we just, the most recent one we did. And so you mentioned there were, there was one podcast with four, I think you use the word filters or four. Well, it's, it's our podcast on strategic planning. Uh, So there's one about strategic planning as a leader and our process here at hope and what that looks like. And the four filters that we use uh, in that planning process, all that would be in that podcast. And again, it's just at the Vance Pittman Leadership Podcast. You can find that on our website, or you can probably put a a link in your show notes to that. And then the book can be purchased anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you get Christian books, anywhere you buy books. I have gleaned a ton just from listening to this and having this interview. I can imagine our listeners are as well. Is there a a best way to maybe just connect with you either through a social media site, a platform, what would you suggest to our listeners? Where will they go to find out more? Yeah, you can do it a variety of ways. You can do it through social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, it's just at Vance Pittman, V-A-N-C-E-P-I-T-M-A-N, just one T, but at Vance Pittman, or you can just email me here at Hope Church, just Vance at HopeChurchOnline.com, or for some other information, I think uh, there's an author page, VancePittman.com, I think is is a place that has all that listed, maybe in one spot where you could find all of those different ways. Before I ask you one more question, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually from Tennessee. Ah, uh, what Chattanooga. part? Okay, oh, beautiful country. That Okoe River, man, it's gorgeous. And so I was raised in a, a Highland Park Baptist Church. Tennessee Temple University and that whole environment. And so missions is a huge part of my life and just my past. But uh, when I first heard you speak, you're from Alabama. I was like, man, those Alabama guys always got us. (laughs) (laughs) Except in the late nineties when you had Peyton Manning, that was not a good run for us. That's true. Hey, one last question. I ask all of our guests, what's one thing you hope to see God do before you die? Great question. And it's a really an easy answer for me. Um, about in 2017, we launched uh, a vision initiative here in our church because uh, I'd been in Las Vegas for 15 years in 2015 and kind of wrestled with, you know, what's next for us. And God really answered that. And we, we, we laid out, a, 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 we called it the next campaign and kind of outlined a 15 year vision uh, that we laid before our church. And, and a piece of that is very significant to my heart. And it's what we call the 1% vision. We've asked God to give us 1% of the Western United States uh, over the next 15 to 20 years. Now, 1% of the Western United States is 750,000 people. You say, how do you reach 750,000 out of 75 million? Well, we've asked God to let us start 300 churches that reproduce and multiply 10 churches each. If that happened, that would give us 3,000 new churches in the Western United States. If each of those churches reached 250 people for Christ, that's 750,000 people. 
And we've asked God to do that in our generation so that that's the seed for the next generation that could maybe see 10% of the West. I believe if there's hope for another great awakening in America, it's the Western United States, because the West is the last pre-Christian culture left in America. The New England states are all post-Christian. The Bible Belt is becoming post-Christian. As you study historically movement of the gospel around the world, it always happens in a pre-Christian context. The Western United States is the last pre-Christian context. It's not unevangelized. It's not unreached, but it is pre-Christian. Most of the people in the West don't have a history of Christianity. And so I believe that there's hope for movement. So we're asking God to let us see 1% of the West in our lifetime so that the next generation could see movement that could really bring, I, I believe, another great awakening to our country. Amen. Thank you for that answer and uh, the opportunity to pray with you for that. Thank you well, very Vance, much. I hope, I hope to be able to meet you in person soon. I know we'll connect through BCI events off and on. Yes, sir. And, man, my pleasure and privilege to interview you. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Todd, it's been an honor, man. Thanks for having me today. and look forward to deepening the friendship and partnership. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.